Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Weird Biology Show podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rigachevsky, your second favorite cryptid from New Jersey. And I'm your other host, Dan Pinellini, the genie of abstract laws. So, Dan, this is our inaugural podcast. Um, this is the first Weird Biology Show podcast we are doing. So why don't we just give our listeners kind of a quick introduction to who we are. So I did a Bachelor's of Biology in, at Rutgers University in South Jersey, just like you did. Um, and then shortly thereafter, I moved to England where I did a Master's in Tropical Marine Biology. Um, I studied deep sea genetics specifically, um, despite doing tropical marine biology figure that one out as you already said i also studied at rutgers university in camden where i got a bachelor's in biology and then i stayed at rutgers for a master's degree in computational and integrative biology with a specialization in qsar modeling and machine learning algorithms and after i completed my master's i stayed on for the phd where i was working with melatonin and circadian rhythms until I decided that the PhD life wasn't quite for me. And then I left and got some experience working with the FDA and now I'm a software developer. Far more interesting that repertoire than I am. I mean, I just work in pharmaceutical development now. I'm not even doing marine biology. <laughs> so that's, that, that's us. We made, we it. made it. We Sean. started from the here and now we're here. Doing a podcast, I guess. <laughs> so today's topic is head transplants. And when I initially pitched this to you, we were going to talk about Russian head transplants specifically. Because when I first learned about this topic, I, I had always thought of it as like this wacky Soviet Union era, uh, mad scientist gone wild sort of thing. And it turns out it's actually a lot more valid science than I really uh, gave it initially. still seemed pretty mad science to me. <laughs> it is, but it, like the, there was a lot of like major medical advances that came out of these. Okay, fair. Fair point. So why don't we start at the beginning? Because I initially thought that this was going to be I thought it was going to start with Russia, and it didn't. It didn't. It started in 1908 by a French surgeon by the name of Alexei Carrel and an American physiologist, Charles Guthrie. They actually did the first canine head transplant, but their dog only lived for a couple of hours, and they kind of called it quits shortly thereafter. Um, so did they just take the head from one dog and just kind of transplant it onto the body of another dog? Yeah, I I couldn't actually find any of their actual research. Um, it, it was it was buried a lot deeper, and I think you'll find out kind of why in, in, in a few seconds. So, Alexei went on to receive a Nobel Prize uh, for physiology or medicine uh, for his vascular suturing techniques. He was attaching the dog's carotid artery to the other dog's carotid artery and attaching their vascular systems together. So it was one heart beating off two heads. So I'm going to assume that that was substantially more effective or successful than the head transplant. Not really. Um, it the, So the suturing technique was. So it was, it was kind of revolutionary for the time. I mean, we're talking this is 1908. But I'll be honest with you, he was kind of a real piece of shit. And shortly after he won the Nobel Prize, 
which by the way, Charles Guthrie didn't get the Nobel Prize because of the dog head transplant <laughs> techniques. Um, that actually disqualified them because people were like, wow, that's fucking appalling. Why would you do this? Where he was kind of led astray was he kind of introduced eugenics to Vichy France. <laughs> um, oh. Yeah, uh, he also kind of allied himself with the Nazis. <laughs> Um, uh, Vichy France, uh, Vichy is a state in France, um, that was one of the few states that allied with Germany prior to the invasion, if I'm remembering correctly. And they were very cool with his ideas of eugenics, as you might remember from just, you know, World War II history in general. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... Despite that, uh, he 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 held on to it. Like they didn't take away his uh, his Nobel Prize for that. France did try to once once they were back under French control and no longer under the Nazi regime, uh, they did try to prosecute him. Uh, but he ended up dying before uh, they could bring him to trial. Um, so there's that. I mean, at at least he died. <laughs> so now we'll move on to what I thought was actually the main topic. And I'll be honest with you. He is still, in my opinion, the main topic while Alexi and, uh, Charles may have started the head transplant. I won't say, uh, Vladimir, uh, perfected it, but he definitely practiced a lot more. So Dr. Vladimir Demikov was born in Yarizenskia, Russia in 1916. Shortly thereafter, his father was killed in the Russian Civil War. So I just want to give the, like a brief aside here to like shout out to all the single working parents because his mother actually like actively worked her ass off to send him and his other two siblings through to um, higher education. That was her goal was that she just wanted her kids to be able to go to college. So, you know, props to the single moms, single parents out there. The issue is, because he was so poor, he was already having issues getting into um, the university. So one of the requirements to be accepted to Moscow University was that all students had to submit a headshot of themselves wearing a suit and a white shirt and tie. Uh, Vladimir was so poor, he had never even owned a suit, let alone a white shirt, in his entire life. So uh, he went and found this photographer and was like, hey man... I don't I don't have the money for this photo. I don't own a suit and they're requiring it. He's like no big deal. He literally takes a picture, he cuts out a suit from another person's photo, tapes it on it, superimposes it and then takes a new photo. Um well, he took a new photo of Vladimir and superimposed the suit onto him. So 1930s um, Photoshop. Literally, literally. <laughs> Shortly after he graduated Moscow University, he was conscripted into the Peasants and Workers Red Army <laughs> for World War II. Um, so he kind of had a, a, a rough start to his medical career. He served predominantly in China uh, during World War II, and he was a forensics expert slash pathologist. So, Dan, what do you think his job was in World War II as a forensics expert slash pathologist? Probably not a great one. His job was to determine if soldiers were shooting themselves to get out of the war. 
And pray tell, Sean, how did you go about <laughs> determining if these soldiers were shooting themselves? So basically, uh, like, if you had a handgun, you can only have that so far away from your body, you know, arm's reach, unless you had a friend shoot you for you. Um, and that would actually leave black powder burns or gunpowder burns on your, your body. <laughs> um, so the paper I was reading was a collaboration between Igor Konstantinov and his daughter, Dr. Olga Demakova, where it, he literally wrote a paper that is just a tribute to Vladimir um, and just his life. So it, he actually went and interviewed his daughter in Vladimir's daughter, that is, in 2009. Um, I think she's still alive today. Um, but, like, he got all sorts of pictures from their life, like, sat down and was like, hey, tell us some anecdotes. And his daughter was telling Igor these stories that he had from the war because she used to ask him, like, what did you do in the war? And, like, oh, well, you know, uh, I made sure our soldiers weren't shooting themselves to get out of the war. Because in the Soviet army, if you were to shoot yourself to get out, that was kind of viewed as desertion, and they were just going to kill you. So... He was literally there to find out who was trying to leave so they could be made an example of. And Vladimir was way better than Alexei. Alexei's kind of a piece of shit. You know, he sided with the Nazis. <laughs> Vladimir was like, hey, I don't want you guys to die. I'm going to lie for you. Stop shooting yourselves, please, because they'll kill me if they find out I'm lying to save you. Um, so he... he he doesn't say how many people he saved or how often he lied uh, to save them, but according to his daughter, he did occasionally lie to save soldiers who were actively trying to get out of the war. What a good guy. Or at least a better guy. <laughs> yeah, right, good guy Vladimir. So even before he went to the war, he was actually kind of a pretty good scientist. Um, and they wasted while... his talents seeing if soldiers shot themselves. Well, I mean, he didn't really have a choice on that. <laughs> well, I said they wasted you know, his talents. I feel like there were so many things time. that they could have had a good scientist doing that would have been slightly more useful. Yeah. In his undergrad, he developed the first artificial heart. I wasn't doing shit as an undergrad. I'll be honest with you. I, I, nothing I did, and I imagine nothing you did, actually compares to creating the first artificial heart. I mean... I established a pretty astoundingly low attendance rate during class my <laughs> senior year, but I'm not really sure that's along the same vein of achievement. Not quite, not quite. Uh, but, you know, maybe we just didn't have the opportunity to make the world's first artificial heart, because that had already been done, you know, 80 years prior. I'm just, I'm just kind of, like, imagining how this goes down, where, you know, some senior officer's like, hey, you, I know you just, you know, invented the first artificial heart. But we really, we really need you to see if that guy shot himself. And I guess that was just like, hey, we kind of know you have this background with surgery. You're not a doctor, though, so we can't, like, have you work on people. So we're just going to call you a forensics expert and a pathologist and send you to the front line um, to look at soldiers in the trenches to tell if they shot themselves. <laughs> I guess times change, but interesting administrative decisions on a government level don't. Yeah. So, during the 1950s is when he starts doing his head transplants. Um, he did over 20 dog head transplants where he took um, usually a puppy or a smaller dog and would attach that 
dog's head to another dog's body, keeping the other dog's head. So he's making two-headed dogs. Um, and the way he was doing that was he was uh, connecting the jugular veins so that the dogs were connected through the same circulatory system. The most famous one was actually in Time Magazine in 1957. I was actually able to find the old magazine uh, on Google, believe it or not. Um, they've got scans of the actual articles where it's one time journalist uh, actually went and watched the operation. So the, the quote-unquote most famous ones are Brodiga, which literally means uh, stray in Russian. So the large dog. It's like kind of a German Shepherd mix. Um, really sorry to all dog lovers out there, but we might get graphic shortly. Um, and the small dog was uh, Shavaka. And the way it was described is prior to attaching the dog's body, he would cut the dog uh, through the like spinal column um, just under the shoulder blades, keeping the lungs, heart, and like the top half of the circulatory system all attached um, and you know working as normal. Um, the dog was obviously sedated probably pretty heavily with morphine because I don't, I don't know what other sedition like <laughs> they had at the time. The other dog was then cut at the neck so that the circulatory systems could be joined. Um, he had previously kept dogs alive with uh, these large pumps that just kept the dog's bloods pumping through it to keep the heart moving. He then would drill holes um, through the spinal column of I think both dogs and he would use kind of uh, a plastic uh, string is how they described it but I'm thinking it's kind of more the equivalent of a zip tie uh, just to keep the dogs attached because literally outside of suturing and this plastic tie nothing is else is really keeping the dogs attached like you know you have a spine <laughs> to keep you from flopping over this dog kind of did just ride on top of the other dog's back um, this sounds less like a head transplant and more like some sort of Frankensteinian graft. <laughs> it was, is the thing. It, is it really was? Um, you can actually find the pictures really easy. It's pretty gross I think to I look at refrain. if you're not prepared. <laughs> Believe it or not, it's yeah, it's 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 not lovely. So the small dog at this point in time, before connecting um, the circulatory systems has both its lungs and its heart removed and is now relying completely on the larger dog's lungs and circulatory system to give it oxygen uh, to keep it alive. Now, the small dog still has its own esophagus, which they just kind of attach to a rubber tube and just kind of let that come out of the incision. So they, they did manage to test that after the dogs came out of sedation, the small dog was still aware it had enough of its central nervous system to keep moving keep aware it, it didn't seem to be like paralyzed for the most part it was able to eat and drink and when i say eat i mean when it would drink the food would literally fall out of the rubber tube that was coming out of the wound that was attached to its esophagus so like it was fulfilling the mental need of eating and drinking but it was it didn't need nourishment because it was relying off of the larger dog's circulatory system to get all of its nutrients and oxygen and blood and you know everything this sounds like some twisted dog version of the human centipede <laughs> that's that's one way to put it um yeah it it was pretty fucked up and 
even at that time when, you know, science is kind of still budding, like people are still trying everything, as you can tell, it was really controversial, obviously. I think I see why. (laughs) People were not thrilled that this dude was cutting up dogs and attaching them to other dogs. His daughter even mentions that he would sometimes bring home the experimental dogs just so he could, like, continue to watch them over the coming hours. Uh, Most of them didn't survive very long, and uh, the one that did survive the longest, I believe, only survived for, like, 24 to 27 days, Um, so about a month before it either succumbed to rejection or it just kind of died of complications or it was put down because they didn't need to keep it alive. Like, I think they were just, you know, creating these little milestones for themselves. Now, he sounds like a crazy person, and it sounds like there is literally no moral hierarchy that he has to answer to in any way, shape, or form. I can definitely see how people would view it as such. Yeah, as a dog owner Uh, myself, this makes my skin crawl. (laughs) Yeah, it's not not great, uh, if I'm being honest. I just want to read through some of his kind of like scientific advancements because he laid a lot of groundwork. And mind you, he laid a lot of groundwork because none of this had been done before at the time. We're talking, you know, the 1930s to the 1950s. Um, So let me just go through a few of his accolades real quick. In 1937, he created the first cardiac assist device. This is his first artificial heart that he made in his undergrad. He also did the first intrathoracic heterotropic heart transplant in a dog. So uh, he removed one dog's heart, put it in another dog. That happened in 1946. Also in 1946, he did the first heart and lung transplant in a dog. In 1947... He did the first lung transplant. In 1948, he did the first liver transplant. In 1951, he completed the first orthotropic heart transplant. So this is when the original animals, vena cava and aorta, are attached to the existing pieces of the vena cava and aorta of the donor heart. So this is like the first true full heart transplant so basically the first time someone kind of took the old heart just completely out and just put the new one in its place yeah literally in 1952 he did the first mammary coronary anatomosis so basically he did the first mammary coronary bypass or at least laid the groundwork for it in 1953 he had the first experimental artery bypass operation And in 1954, he did his first head transplant. So before he was even cutting off heads and putting new heads on, he was really laying the groundwork for these massive medical procedures that human doctors would go on to perform. He did all of this on dogs predominantly. Um, Most of his surgeries took about 12 hours. So he was apparently actually quite quick of a surgeon once he kind of got into the rhythm of uh, doing these heart transplants and stuff. But, like, it, it's it's kind of sad that his memory is reduced to the guy that did dog head transplants. In reality, it's like, oh, well, actually, he was the guy that laid all of the true groundwork for all organ transplants, especially big ones like heart and lungs. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like his memory might be a little bit less... A little bit more, he might be a little bit more well-remembered if it was just 
the dog head transplants and not so much the horror movie-esque grafting one dog to another yeah yeah <laughs> look i think he just had a bad pr rep <laughs> maybe maybe if there was somebody back then that could have just like look it looks crazy but you know and just kind of put a nice little spin on it because you need one hell of a pr rep for that <laughs> you would i would love to meet the person that would love to take that on and just kind of spin it how w- if we have listeners out there that do do public relations please give me a pitch on how you would present this to the general public to cause minimal freakout. We will also accept that there's no possible way to present this in a way that no, won't there's, freak there's people. No, there's a way. There's a way. I believe it. I thought the tangent um, to you, Harper. You just you have to wonder. Did out of curiosity, did you read anything about? Was this? I guess I will call it a head transplant for simplicity. Even though I'm not sure, I really agree that's what it was. Was all this kind of like an evolution of his interest in the circulatory system with the heart? Is this kind of just what he viewed as the next step? Or like, how did he go from, I'm going to do all this revolutionary research on the heart and, you know, transplanting to, let me grab two dogs and graft them together. Honestly, I didn't read anything about that, but I'm going to say he was really just interested in the circulatory system. I mean, you can see it in, he was doing the lung, like he, the only thing that he jumped away from the circulatory system was doing a liver transplant. You know, he, he invented the first cardiac device, you know, he did all these heart and lung transplants. He proved that he could keep two brains alive on a singular uh, circulatory system. Although, I mean, even at this time, surely thing like people and animals have been born uh, conjoined twins. So I think the idea had always existed that it was possible to keep, you know, uh, a, a second head alive on one circulatory system. But I think he just went out and proved that it could be done artificially as well. I don't... The problem is we don't know anything else about, like, limb... He wasn't trying any limb transplants other than the head. And even that, like, the dogs he was grafting onto the other dogs were much smaller. We're, we're talking about, like, something that's, like, a Chihuahua to Jack Russell-sized attached to a much larger dog, like a German Shepherd, where you know that bigger dog is going to have enough, you know, push and blood pressure to keep the, the everything running kind of well, even in a smaller body. Honestly, I think that um, size disparity is kind of what makes it sound so horrifying. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, you know, if you had a tiny little head of yourself on top of your regular body with your regular size head. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. He never really talks about, like, why he was interested in doing it but like the guy is the father of the heart and lung transplants and he will probably always just go down in history as the guy that grafted dog heads to other dog bodies like he never uh, uh, attempted to remove the dog's head and put a completely new body on but i think one of your doctors actually did do that so i just want to do a, a quick aside from here before we go over to you uh, and, and your background research. This actually kind of spurred the world of human medicine on to start trying this. One of his biggest fans was Christian Bernard. He was a surgeon from South Africa. During his undergrad, he was also doing kind of similar experiments, kind of inspired by uh, Vladimir. So Christian went on to do the second ever kidney transplant in South Africa. Uh, the Americans had just done the first one ever about four years prior in 1953. 
The second one was done in 1957. He went on to do the first human-to-human heart transplant, though, which is, you know, big news. Like, these these are life-saving organ transplants that, were, like, are kind of really commonplace now, but at the time, they were groundbreaking, and they were literally kind of jumping off the ideas that this quote-unquote Russian mad scientist was doing in the 50s. Though I don't, I don't necessarily think he was a mad scientist. I think he was brilliant and kind of well before his time. Unfortunately, the man that received the first human-to-human heart transplant uh, came to rejection, organ rejection, only a few weeks later. He only lived, I think, 27 days uh, before succumbing to um, both pneumonia as well as organ rejection. So it it is what it is. He he did an amazing, an amazing surgery. It's just medicine was still very limited at the time, and they had only just kind of created these drugs a few years prior to kind of combat organ rejection, and it it unfortunately ended up leading to his death. It's just crazy to think how you know revolutionary that was in their time. Considering I don't want to say it's it's commonplace, but it's pretty commonplace these days. So. Right, like, I mean, there are plenty of cardiothoracic surgeons out there. Like, you could probably look up in your phone book and probably find a, a cardiothoracic surgeon near you. Like, that that probably would not be an issue. Probably every single hospital, I guarantee every single hospital. Yeah, maybe I won't. Maybe rural America doesn't have cardiothoracic surgeons. Sean, you're showing our age, by the way. Just let me look <laughs> up my, uh, my, my phone book that I definitely still have in use. Right, <laughs> You break out your Rolodex and you look up your local cardiothoracic surgeon. Okay, boomer. <laughs> so that sums up the 19 aughts to 1967. So I'm going to let you take 1970s to present day. Hit us with it, Dan. All right. So I'm going to talk about some scientists that were uh, that did some stuff that was slightly less horrifying. <laughs> and... Ooh. Uh... With significantly easier to pronounce names, uh, but <laughs> don't let the the lack of horrifying aspect get you down because some of the stuff that was contained in you know papers I found sounds like it came straight out of a science fiction movie <laughs> novel, whatever you want to call it. So after you know in the nineteen the mid nineteen fifties, we were just talking about with our good Doctor Vladimir. Research on the head transplant stuff kind of subsided for a little while because, you know, big-time ethical concerns. So the next big prominent uh, head transplant research really didn't come until about 1970 from a scientist by the name of Dr. Robert J. White. He was actually a neuroscientist, so, you know, we're starting to move away from people just... I don't want to say tinkering because it's not a really good (laughs) descriptor of what Dr. Vladimir was doing, but, you know, now we're starting to move into people who are actually specializing in neuroscience trying to research the head transplant coming at it from that angle instead of the circulatory system angle. So what Dr. Robert J. White is most known for, and he got off a little bit easier than uh, Dr. Vladimir, his most prominent research was actually about, I guess you could call it cryogenics, researching uh, deep cooling of spinal cord injuries to greatly reduce the long-term damage and paralysis that would be suffered from you know, a spinal cord injury. Um, he was so prominent in the field, and his research on those deep cooling techniques was actually so widely regarded that by a lot of people in his field in neuroscience, he was actually 
worthy of consideration for the Nobel Prize. He never received it, but he was a well-regarded neuroscientist, and despite how controversial some of the head transplant research was, he that wasn't really what defined his career. I mean, at least he wasn't a Nazi sympathizer. Like That's Alexei. true. He was not a Nazi sympathizer, so automatic plus one Dr. Robert J. White. Yeah, and he got a Nobel Prize. Robert White should have got one. <laughs> So, in 1970, um, Dr. Robert J. White is performed what is pretty widely regarded as the first successful head transplant. And we're not talking about just, you know, like a, some sort of horrific circulatory graft or like a combining two living things together almost. <laughs> he took the head of one rhesus monkey and fully transplanted it onto the body of another rhesus monkey. That's super cool considering like the amount of damage that comes from like severing the spinal cord and like everything that like like the esophagus like there's a lot to reattach yeah i mean the damage definitely still happened because the the monkey was paralyzed from the neck down after the surgery right i mean because this was 1970 and here in 2020 we still don't really know a whole lot about nervous system regeneration so they certainly didn't in 1970. I want to I want to throw something at you real quick because I I loosely know about this and I remember coming I don't know if you've come across this in your background research but like there's a urban legend based around this experiment. Do you know what I'm talking about? You, it may even be in the actual papers that like one of the nurses helping on that surgery was bitten I think, by the monkey. I think, yeah, I think you know, I knew where you were going with that as soon as you said urban legend. <laughs> and according to everything that I read about, that is 100% true. That's how they knew it worked. Because the monkey woke up and immediately thanked them for the procedure by biting the nearest attendant's finger. <laughs> so, like, the urban legend takes it one step further. It's like, and then the monkey ripped itself out of the restraints and ran around the hospital. I'm like, that's not possible. Uh, and I think I think you can back me up here in saying that's not possible because the nerve endings are not connected. If by ripped its way out of its restraints, you meant laid there paralyzed from the neck down, <laughs> then yes. Right. Um. So, yeah, so the monkey made it through the procedure. It survives, it, if you call that surviving, because, you know, you took a healthy monkey and it now is paralyzed from the neck down, but it lived. You broke a perfectly good monkey. The monkey was alive, responsive. He managed to reconnect the cranial nerves in such a fashion that the monkey head was receiving nourishment from the donor body. It could still eat, taste, smell... As far as they can tell, everything from the neck up was working properly. Senses intact, ability to perform basic functions. So the monkey was alive. It made it through the surgery. Did they have to, like, keep it on, like, an iron lung or on, like, a blood pump? Like, what? Yeah. was anything keeping the, 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 the donor body pumping? Yeah, as, as far as I know, it's, like, kind of an assisted living state because, you know, the... Okay. You're severing the nerves, so the heart right. working, the lungs working, they all rely on signals from the brain, and that's not going to happen when you chop straight through the spinal column. Right. So, yeah, there was assisted breathing, assisted circulation, but the monkey was alive. Um, it didn't make it that long, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at this from a humane perspective. You know, as a, as a mercy-killing way, it's probably for the best yeah, the first one made it nine days unlike some of the previous experiments there weren't complications it just simply came down to immune rejection um not entirely sure if it was a lack of research or understanding about how to prevent that at the time but immune rejection is really what did them in 
like, like those drugs did exist at the time, but like, because they're immunosuppressants, like, and these animals are being kept in like hospitals and stuff, like there are obviously other infections that are, you know, able to enter the body and like cause all sorts of like comorbidities and yeah, though in this case it wasn't, as far as I could tell from the reading, it wasn't really a comorbidity or another infection. It just simply came down to the fact that eventually the host body rejected, or the host head rejected the donor body. Okay, so it, it wasn't like the first human-to-human head transplant where the the drugs were actually causing an immunosuppressant and the guy caught pneumonia. And yeah, no, died, this was just, it came down to the, the donor body, or the host head, whichever you want to call it, mm-hmm. just rejected the donor body. So that was ultimately the cause of death for the first transplant. Now, being a scientist like he is, he of course did this several more times. Um, you know, you got to get the data numbers up. Yeah, you so have a good sample size. The basically, he was met with the similar results the whole time. If they worked, the monkeys were alive. They retained all their sensory abilities. None of them made it longer than a month. This was, and I'm sure this is going to shock you, so I, you might want to sit down. But this was regarded <laughs> as very controversial at the time. Believe it or not, <laughs> it was controversial to cut something's head off and put it on another animal's body. A lot of a lot of his peers, you know, routinely referred to his experiments as barbaric. <laughs> they saw this as just he should not be doing it, and this is super odd considering that Dr. Robert J. White also was an advisor on bioethics to four different popes (laughs) so yeah you know i'm here for his ethics i i think he did the right thing like we're talking massive medical advances like this probably also laid some pretty solid groundwork for limb transplants like there's people getting all sorts of transplants these days like and part of it's probably because people like Dr. Demikov and Dr. White are literally laying, like, this horrific, you know, morally gray groundwork. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of his retort to the scientists who criticized him and called his work barbaric. You know, anytime there's medical advancement, it's called barbaric by the detractors until it starts working. He didn't seem like a bad or morally corrupt man or anything. It's just, you know, groundbreaking science courts controversy. Absolutely. Um, I'm sure he earned his stern rebuke from PETA. uh, Yeah, I can imagine they were just (laughs) thrilled with the work of Dr. Robert J. White. But up to the 1970s, that was kind of of it. Um, He obviously lived until, I think it was 2010, but there was not really any progression on the head transplant because we just, we don't, and we could argue (laughs) that we still don't have the technology to take it any Mm. further because there's still the, the big, big problem of well, how do you reconnect to the nerves? Like it, yeah. This is great, but you're basically the application of this is so limited, even if it does work. So yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. if you if you can't get the circulatory system running on its own, or off the the brain's you know signals, like there's there's nothing to actually keep the head alive right. without like assistance. Right. So so because of that, we kind of there was a big big gap between that and anything else happening so we fast forward to the year 2015 and this is where shit starts to sound like something straight out of a sci-fi book movie whatever (laughs) Um, we we aren't there yet (laughs) so in 2015 we've got uh dr sergio canavero he was an italian neurosurgeon 
Uh, if anybody's been paying attention to the news a few years back, you may recognize him as the man who was planning the first human head transplant. <laughs> that didn't happen because the proposed... I almost said victim. Which, <laughs> <laughs> uh, You're not wrong. The proposed patient decided that maybe it wasn't such a good idea after all, and he kind of liked his life. But... The- if I'm remembering correctly, because I kind of remember back to, like, when this was news, the patient was, like, terminally ill, wasn't he? Like, I don't believe it was terminally ill, but it was a not great quality of life. You know, Dr. Canavero was like, you know, we can do this, we can make it work, and we can give you a better quality of life. And the patient was on board until he wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It, even if you're, like, say, quadriplegic, you only have, you know, control over your facial features and maybe your neck. I don't know how much quality of life... Like, I, I can't say I know this guy's situation, but, like, I can't imagine your quality of life improving in such a way that you're like, yes, for the next six months of my life or however long I live, I would like to be connected to a blood pump and an iron lung that's keeping this donor body alive to keep my head alive. Um, Cause it's not like he's going to be able to just get up and go run a marathon. Like even if he got a marathoner's body, like, yeah, I mean, I'll the- touch on this a little bit after, cause I'm going to talk about some of the considerations and implications of this stuff. But the only way I can see this really being possibly viable is if you are a quadriplegic and you are dying and yeah. you wish to be a quadriplegic that is not, dying but i'll get there yeah um so this is this paper by dr sergio canavero is a theoretical paper so unlike the rest of the stuff that we touched on this wasn't an experiment that was actually done because human head transplantation is not something you can really just say well let's try it and see what happens um so this is a theoretical paper all talks about the realm of what I'm going to say the realm of what may be possible, even though he seems to think this is a discussion on what is definitely possible and how to go about it. Not that I think it's, you know, it's never going to happen, but I question at current technology. But he calls his procedure, and this is where we dip into the sci-fi realm, I kid you not, he calls his procedure the heaven surgery. Uh, It stands for head anastomosis venture surgery. But he decided to call it, in all caps, mind you, every time it appeared, the heaven surgery. The idea behind this surgery is it's split into two main steps, we'll call it. So step one is hypothermia. And this kind of touches on some of the stuff that Dr. Robert J. White was researching Mm -hmm. on. Cooling the host head to roughly 12 to 15 degrees celsius as that was what was determined as the lower limit of hypothermia from which someone can recover so basically Mm. theoretically inducing hypothermia in the patient to you know be able to get the head off and onto the new body without Mm. just bleeding out and along with robert white's you know background that that sounds like it would you know theoretically work like it's to keep the 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 nerves from being damaged it keeps the brain you know healthy and you know not dying well, that's that's the big <laughs> one to prevent surgery. brain damage and brain death right because you know you cut the brain off from oxygen or really anything right. you're cutting someone's head off and you'll recognize that is widely regarded as a death sentence yeah usually that kills you <laughs> and then this is where it starts to get maybe a little bit gruesome but step two of part one of the procedure is exsanguination of the head 
of the person who is receiving this body transplant, I guess. Basically, they take the head that's going to be put on the new body and completely drain it of blood. Cool. Uh, to avoid blood coagulation. Now, Dan, would you say that removing all the blood from your brain usually also leads to death, I, especially when paired with removing your head from your body? I would say that it's a fairly high likelihood that <laughs> losing all of the blood in your head will lead to death. Interesting, interesting. Do continue. And then the last step of the first part of the surgery is theoretically you take the spine, not the entire body, and this was made a clear distinction, but the body that the head is going to be placed onto, they selectively cool just the spine. They want to, again, prevent nerve damage, but the issue is you can't kind of do the split you're doing with the head where you just cool the whole thing because if you induce hypothermia into the entire donor body, you're going to start getting damage to the donor organs from the low temperature so they selectively cool the spine and then they have one hour was the mentioned time frame to perform the next part of the surgery so we descend deeper into some sci-fi nonsense to the gemini procedure in step two <laughs> okay that yeah that sounds like you know you you've got me aboard your ship and you're about to gemini me <laughs> yeah so We've got the cooled spinal nerves in the donor body, right? And this was mentioned probably at least five to six times, that you must use an ultra-sharp blade, and it was mentioned <laughs> just like that, to sever the cooled spinal nerves. That's good. I was going to use my old rusty pizza cutter. I'm glad he specified. <laughs> I mean, what else are you going to use to do something? Bring the really sharp blades. So basically, the idea behind that is that, unlike injury, which if you, you know, nerve damage, nerve tear, that's usually a tear, a clean cut at the right spot will allow the proximally severed axons to be fused with the, so you know, there's two parts of the nerves. It basically, if you cut it with a really sharp knife, the clean cut will allow you to fuse the nerves from the head to the nerves of the body so that because it will match up well they'll be able to fuse back together instead of right. with some sort of nasty tear injury where that that's not really possible and the final step and this this actually sounded pretty cool to me because i didn't really know there was research into this but the plan to fuse the two nervous systems you know the severed nerves i was actually by the application of inorganic polymers um, called hmm. they call them pegs or polyethylene glycol which have been shown in previous research to immediately fuse be able to either refuse or repair cell membranes that were damaged by injury. So the thought is you get these clean cuts, you can line the nerves up properly, allow them to refuse, and then you help them out with these inorganic molecules that have been shown to fuse or repair cell membranes. All right, so you, you slap the cell glue on and you, you're, you're... Effectively, yeah. They're just like, you know, you just <laughs> cut the nerves real good, real sharp blade, and glue them back together. And... That is a gross oversimplification that makes the whole process sound <laughs> ridiculous, but... Uh, I mean, but it... Feasibly, it's possible. It's one of those things where it's possible, but, you know, we don't really know, because... Right. Yeah, these these inorganic polymers have shown to fuse cell membranes or repair them if they're damaged by injury, but we've also mm. seen a lot of research that neurons don't quite behave like other cells, necessarily, so... Right. It's one of those things where, you know, he pauses this says, oh, this will definitely work. And it's like, well, <laughs> right. maybe. It sounds like it could work, but there's a lot of a lot of what-ifs, which I guess is a decent segue. So part of these what-ifs are the, you know, the considerations and the implications of something like this. Because it's pretty wild to, to, to even think, like, if this could, let's just say uh, 200 years from now, this is a perfected thing. 
rich people are going to be doing it nonstop. They're going to be like, ah, this body's old. Get me the new one. Get me the new one. Granddad head on a 20-year-old <laughs> body. But uh, oh, And that's, that's part of the, the implications, the considerations you have to make with something like this. Because, you know, I'm not trying to make a political statement, a statement about society at large or anything. But the fact of the matter is that we live in a society where body image issues are very prevalent. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Fair, at, fair to say. At, I mean, at least in America, <laughs> I can't speak to other cultures. But what the hell kind of body image issues do you create when all of a sudden you have slapped a new body? <laughs> You've given someone an entirely new body. Like, <laughs> there's no way that that can't fuck with your sense of self when you're trying to reconcile a body that's not yours with your personal identity. So let's let's Theseus ship your body real quick. What what new parts do you want to add to just completely, you know, remake Dan? I want to, you know, I'm going to say I want my head attached to a silverback gorilla's body. Can we make it happen, Dan? Am I still me if I'm attached <laughs> to a silverback gorilla? I, I don't know, Sean. Are you still you if you're attached to a silverback gorilla? We've never seen, because silverback gorillas don't work out, we've never seen a silverback gorilla at peak performance. <laughs> and that could be me. That could be me someday. That could be you, Sean. Don't let your <laughs> dreams be dreams. But, you know, we start we start running into, you know, a whole host of identity issues. You know, you, you, we talk, we joke about people having identity crisis, but what kind of identity crisis do you have when all of a sudden the only part of you remaining is from the neck up? It, it, it really creates this disposable body kind of mentality. This is just me thinking, like... Because it's going to be rich people that are going to be able to just afford to be able to do I mean, this. They already feasibly. made a Netflix series about this. I don't know if you heard about the series called Altered Carbon. I've heard about it, but I've not it's, watched it. I hear it's fantastic. It's, this is our new podcast inside of a podcast where we review Altered <laughs> Carbon every episode. It's it's not quite a head transplant, but the, the base concept is you're, you're transporting your consciousness into another body. Right. And you just do this over and over again. And the rich people do this. Like, I don't, this body sucks. I want a new one. I'm going to move away from the, you know, the metaphysical little bit. But, you know, a, a real, you know, scientific, I don't know scientific concern is anybody that goes through something any kind of organ transplant the person is going to be on lifelong immunosuppression that's just oh absolutely a fact <laughs> of how it works uh, you have to be on lifelong immunosuppression because you're receiving an entirely new organ that your body identifies as foreign and we've already seen in you know several other of the experiments we've brought up that that's re- organ rejection is a big problem with organ transplants in general it's it's one of the things that creates the failing point it's you know here's a healthy working organ but if your body doesn't view it as its own organ it's just going to be like nope can't use that right and then what happens when you know you're now not only fighting to get a body to accept an organ you're fighting you're fighting a lifelong battle against the entire body trying to reject the head yeah so is that more or less complicated than, you know, the immunosuppression for just a single organ? They would both be trying to, re- like, reject each other, wouldn't they? Exactly. And that's, you know, you, you're you <laughs> fighting to stop, yeah. for the rest of this individual's life, you're going to be fighting to stop the body from rejecting the head and vice versa. That's it, it's, it's pretty wild to think. And, like, even if you want to keep just pushing this further and further, like these bodies have to come from somewhere so is it like you know how, how are we sourcing the are these organically formed human bodies well i mean the, <laughs> i think you touched on that and you know that 
what they say is, you know, well, there's plenty of people every year that they die because they go brain dead. There's nothing wrong yeah. with the, the body, just their brain dead. And it just feels like it's going to create, like, a black market. Like, hey, Dan, my condolences. I'm so sorry your sister died. By the way, Could we need I that body. Her body. <laughs> We're willing to pay. Jennifer Love Hewitt needs a new body. I don't know why I picked Jennifer Love Hewitt. Jennifer, I know you're a listener. I'm so sorry for dragging you into this sci-fi nightmare. I mean, speaking of sci-fi, that kind of leads me into the last consideration that you know, is really a big one. Uh, and this starts to be like some Ghost in the Shell shit. I don't know if you've ever seen Ghost in the Shell. Yes, I uh, have seen Ghost in the Shell. For any of our listeners who haven't, uh, it's basically a sci-fi anime that touches heavily on a you know, sense of self because it's futuristic setting where people are starting to replace their body parts with cybernetics. I mean, we got Cyberpunk 2077 just around the corner. So this this kind of touches on the, the metaphysical debate surrounding the sense of self entirely, you know. What does it mean to be alive? You know, Are you still you if you <laughs> right. replace everything but the head with someone else's body? There could even you know it was me projecting my ridiculous sci-fi dreams like there could be a, a period of time you know probably outside of our life life that you're able to download your consciousness and upload it into a robot body or you know a different human body like there's so much about like neuroscience we don't really know or how know, thoughts did. and memories that are stored in israel did just come out that they said they found out how to reverse aging so maybe we'll be around for it there this might be actually a topic for another podcast, but, like, anti-aging is a thing. Like, uh, there's an experiment out of, I think it's Stanford or Harvard, where they look at mouse blood and the anti-aging effects of putting young blood in old mice, and it it seems to work. So I I really, you know, you know listeners, if you want to hear an episode about anti-aging science, it's out there. Like, there's, there's people researching it because that is a multi-billion dollar industry. Huh. Before I dig us too hard, though, I just, yeah, it's it's kind of like, you know, the, and this has been explored in several media things. I just happened to pick Ghost in the Shell because I'm a nerd. Uh, I mean, we could have gone Island of Dr. Moreau. But, you know, what what defines an individual? <laughs> At what point are you no longer you? Is your identity, is your self defined as your mind? Is it, you know, is your body part of what makes you you? you know, you kind of get into all these metaphysical implications yeah. of a head transplant and it's just a lot of stuff to think about that you know goes well beyond just the scientific part of the of this mm. surgery and i i feel like there would definitely be people that would take this really lightly like that are just willing like you saw a few years ago when people were like hey sign up and we'll put you on the first colony ship to mars and people were just like, yeah, I want to go to Mars. I'm like, you actually want to be the first person on Mars. Oh, that just like, blows my mind. I'm like, how are you so cavalier signing up for, yeah, I'll go die on Mars. Because you're not coming right. back. Let's be so flippant. Yes, <laughs> I would love to sign up to have my body replaced. Please, uh, give me that one. Yeah. So it's it's just, it's a lot to think about. And, you know, for all these reasons, I don't know that, I don't want to say that we're never going to have a head transplant because you know, there's a lot of things around today that if you would have asked someone 30, 40 years right. ago, they would have said, yeah, never. But I don't necessarily think we're close. Um, this Dr. Canavero seems to think we are, but I don't know. And, you know, even if we do get to the point where we could, you know, it, it comes back to that age old scientific debate. It's not could, could we, but 
But should we? Uh, whatever the Jeff Goldblum quote is from Jurassic Park. <laughs> Let's just go ahead and just plug that in. Plug that in to make up for the fact that we can't yeah, remember Yeah, put that it. in in post. Yeah, I mean, like, I believe that this will eventually happen, and it might happen in our lifetime. It's, a, it's in the realm of possibility. Whether or not it should, are we the naysayers now? Are we the people looking at, you know, uh, Demikov and White and saying, hey... This is insane. Nothing you were like you're doing pseudoscience. You're just cutting heads off and putting it on other bodies. Like I mean, there's science. If to I was alive in the 1950s, I absolutely would have been a naysayer to some of the oh, shit absolutely. that Dr. Like it, did. It's super easy to be like, no, because look, even going into this podcast, that was my mentality. It was like. Wow, Demikrov is fucking crazy. He was just cutting off dogs' heads' bodies and sticking them to other dogs with heads' bodies and making two-headed dogs. That's insane. And now I have kind of a more appreciation of, like, the work he actually was doing. Uh, Grotesque as it may be. But I still think he was a little bit insane. Maybe. He was a pretty nice guy from what I've seen and what I've told the podcast. (laughs) Am I clouding it with my own... Uh, you know, morals here and how I'm telling the story? Maybe. Um, It's a really interesting topic. And, like, are we going to end up as Futurama heads in jars? Like, I certainly hope not, because that sounds like a miserable existence. (laughs) Fucking miserable. Um, You know, is are we ever going to be to the point where we're, like, kind of in the Matrix and we can just plug in? I mean, you know, there's definitely people listening to the Joe Rogan podcast. We're like, we're in a simulation. Like, we're not probably in a simulation. I mean... We're in a simulation. It's a pretty shit simulation. Yeah, this sucks. Yeah, I fucking... I'm not even the main character. This is bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, I want a different simulation, man. Fuck this. I have to fucking do a podcast as part of my simulation. But yeah, no, I I agree. I think that the technology to do this will... There's a good chance that it'll happen in our lifetime. Yeah. Uh... Will we have wrestled with the philosophical implications of cutting someone's head off and sticking it on another <laughs> Will body? Will we have come to terms with this? I have my doubts. Yeah, I, I think, because this was controversial, even in, in, obviously, in 2015, it was controversial. I think there are people still trying to do this. In fact, I, I am willing to believe that there is some, you know, doctor in China or Italy or, you know, that is willing to just be like, yeah, we're going to do it. Like... <laughs> Like and they probably have the funding I mean, to that, do it. That scientist is is Doctor Canavera. He's still like, no, we're gonna do it. <laughs> this is happening, it, and everybody else is, is like, he, ah. Is he an actual like neuroscientist? He is. Or is he's he an like, Italian neurosurgeon. Okay. So he's okay. He's an actual surgeon too. I, I was yeah. wondering if he was like just a neuroscientist. I'm like, yeah, feasibly, this could work. You know, because his paper is theoretical. But when you look back to you know Doctor White's experiment it, it's possible yeah, enough no, he to, he you know. is a neurosurgeon so uh, he's, he's you know he's adamant that this is this is happening and everybody around him's like <laughs> and i i look i do not blame them for their skepticism i think they're you should always approach science with skepticism like it's 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 very to get easy to get bogged down in you know what the dogma is because you know again but all the doctors we've mentioned have been controversial at their time. Like, but now you wouldn't you wouldn't bat an eye saying like, 
oh, my uncle had to get a liver transplant. Well, you might, you might bat a sympathetic eye, but you're like, yeah, that's a thing we do. I would never look at someone and be like, yeah, I had a, a, a face transplant and be like, oh, wow, that's really cool and interesting. I would never be like, that's fucking barbaric. Who would do that? Yeah, I don't know. Is this, is this the first step on our journey to making Ghosts in the Shell real life? Who knows? I, is is this our? Well, I mean, you you could argue that this is you know us getting further and further away from what it is to be human. Like, I mean, if you want to have that conversation of what it is to be human, but <laughs> you know, here we are, like, with the potential uh, that maybe someday we can just switch bodies and have that conversation on the Weird Philosophy Show podcast. Yeah, with our friends Socrates and these cards. These cards. And with that, that's all the time we've got for this week's episode of the podcast. So now before we go, I'm going to turn it over to Sean for one last thing. This week's featured creature. Sean, take it away. So this week's featured creature is the platypus. It's already fucking ridiculous. It's the only mammal that can create its own custard. And now it's also biofluorescent, apparently. So for those of you that aren't familiar... Biofluorescence is when the light that is shined onto a creature or a plant or an animal or anything is reflected back at a different wavelength. So, under a black light, platypuses glow. They they glow like green. <laughs> it's really weird because, generally speaking, you only sort of see this in corals, plants. And it kind of raises the question... Why do platypuses glow? For what reason? I think you could have just stopped it. It raises the question about platypuses of why? Why? Why do platypus? They're venomous. They secrete milk from their sweat glands. They lay eggs. Like, and now they glow. Like, this is platypuses. Don't they have, like, bills, too? I'm not... Yeah, yeah, they're the duck-billed platypus. So they've... Yeah, let's start with the fact they, they look weird. They're mammals that lay eggs and sweat milk. They're venomous, <laughs> and now they glow. They're ridiculous. There's, there is nothing about a platypus that says this is a real animal. This is something that a five-year-old has dreamed up in their head, but here it is. This is God's practical joke to the animal kingdom. <laughs> and with that, we leave you. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to thank my younger brother, Jesse Rikachevsky, who wrote our theme song, the weird biology show podcast theme you can check out his music over at jesse ricka that's j-e-s-s-e-r-y-k-a on instagram soundcloud and facebook is there anything else you'd like to plug before we go dan and while you're on all those social medias check out our social medias at the weird bio show you're right we are on twitter facebook uh, Instagram, and we have our own website at weirdbioshow.com. Um, on all other social medias, we are at weirdbioshow. Thank you so much for joining us on our first episode, and we look forward to having you guys again next week. See you next time.